The following is a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Wow. That was like one of the most strained pores I've ever seen. And I think you need to use. I'm out of shape, Bart. I haven't yeah. been pouring in the in the restaurant for a long time. We Four actually did use the, we did use this decanter the other day because we've been doing some library tastings. But uh, so that's our first decanter pour decanter pour. Well, we got nice wines today. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so they deserved a decanter. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the winemakers. I'm John Myers with Brian Casey and Bart Hansen, a special guest today. Chris Tynan of Christopher Tynan Wines. There you go. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for allowing me over the over, county border. Over the, over the border. Are your papers in order? <laughs> I you mean, got I some hear, ties over I was here. Say, you have some ties that I think <laughs> um, get your uh, expedited visa. There's yeah. still a body cavity search involved. That's just <laughs> not nice. Well, welcome again. Uh, what a pleasure. Beautiful day in Sonoma, California. So. Uh, and well, we've got some spectacular wines. You must have a, a cellar that's a mile wide, man. Uh, I I took it upon myself uh, early on when I started getting into wine. I realized that having a, a cellar was an important part of being a winemaker, that you needed to have some connoisseurship and, <laughs> and appreciation of wines that came before you and um, and then aging them in a in a nice cellar to enjoy them over the next 20, 30 years and maybe pass them down to your kids or all that good stuff. So oh, you're a better man than I am. So I've definitely invested time and energy on that. I really enjoy it. What did you pour first, Chris? Well, I thought uh, we'd start the day off tasting with a wine that kind of um, was, you know, special for you guys because it's a Sonoma Valley wine. Yeah. Um, and it uh, is a great wine. It's a 1986 B.R. Cone Olive Hill. Um, and it was also made by a, a winemaker that kind of became famous in Napa Valley more than Sonoma. Well, I guess she's in, famous in Sonoma now, too, because yeah. they're Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, but um, uh, made by Helen Turley back in the, in the mid-80s. Turley, so. yeah. And when, when was, how long was she the winemaker at B.R. Cohn? Um, I've heard different things. I don't know exactly. I believe it was in 84 to 87 or something like that's that. That's kind like of what sounds, I... Sounds, have, sounds that's... Yeah. Right. That's what I kind of heard. Because then, you know, Charlie Tolbert, remember who we had? Um, on the podcast, yeah, no. Charlie was uh, the winemaker there for a little while, okay. kind of after Helen. Um, yeah. And, and you know, B.R. Cohn at the time, it, um, it it was getting some great reviews, you know, and, and, and those what they called the gold label, because I think there was a silver label also. The gold label was like, you know, highly um, lauded, so to speak. Well, and those um, people that don't know B.R. Cohn owned by used to be owned by Bruce Cohn, who was the manager of the Doobie Brothers. And so that's how we got all of the cool concerts that Absolutely, we got in the summers yeah. where we would get the Doobie Brothers and the Eagles and because um, Bruce would everybody would played. do that show. It was like Bottle Rock. It was yeah. Sonoma Bottle Rock before Bottle Rock. And on that nice little hill. Yeah. You know, I mean, what a cool place. Yeah. I don't know. I was always working. It was always during the harvest. <laughs> yeah. And we knew it was going on. And I was always working too, but usually at a hotel or restaurant. So right. we saw the people either in the morning or at night, but then I wasn't ever at the shows. But I would see Bruce at the Fig Cafe. He would come in 
um, with his girlfriend and he was um, an interesting cat. Um, and there's something about that property and I, he tried to explain it to me. You never know when the owners of vineyards tell you stuff, if it's true or not, that there's like some aquifers running under the vineyards there that they have like their own natural well, water source or something. I mean, so the area, that part of Sonoma called for those listening Madrone road, I always call it kind of the, the center of Sonoma Valley. That is a banana belt. It's always the first to push out. Um, there is, there's always been talk about warm springs running underneath that area around Valley of the Moon, Abbott's Passage. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, oh, I forgot something. Um, <laughs> oh boy. Uh, <laughs> uh, at any rate, um, so yes, I think, I think that's true. I think there are warm springs and, you know, um, up at Cundy, um, they had a thing in their cave when they built their cave, it wasn't as cool as they had hoped. And it was because there were warm springs um warming the cave you yeah know, it's funny real things. they don't mention that on the tour because i took that tour not too long ago um in the caves of kundi and i wanted to ask them about that yeah where they they like, dug a cave and, and it ended up being a sauna <laughs> <laughs> that happened at opus one as well yeah oh, oh for real right yeah okay yeah well didn't that area out in kenwood used to be all swamp and when did they change i mean Back in uh, pterodactyl uh, yeah. time. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, all right. So. It's not tar pit. Not something current, huh? No, I mean, there's definitely, there is the um, the marsh there behind what was the Kenwood restaurant. It's now um, Salt, and Stone. Salt and Stone. And the vineyard that the Lassiters bought that Phil farms, um, you know, that is all planted just to white varieties because it's the only thing that'll get ripe there. Huh. Um, because again, it's, you know, pretty heavy clay soils and whatnot. Yeah. So. What not, Bart? You um, do you ever play Wordscapes on your phone? I don't know. It's it's like Scrabble. I don't know if anyone knows what I'm talking about, yeah, but I know the game. So for sure. because you say what not, I started saying it about four or five years ago, and it Sounds drives right. my wife absolutely insane. Um, she thinks it's like a East Coast like older person thing. I don't know what she thinks. So I never thought anything of it, and then I'm playing Wordscapes the other day on my phone, and it was a seven letter word. And I couldn't figure it out and then finally figured it out. And it was whatnot. And it's one word. <laughs> I thought it was two words, whatnot. Like it was some came from, I don't know. I just thought it was bizarre that I, um, I so it, my, you, you came in high, handy. Pedal my high school education. I think I have to blame. Yeah. No, it came in handy, Bart. So thank you. You helped me, you helped me finish my wordscape and get the bonus score. <laughs> so you were able to find a whole case of this Cone wine? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's one of the cool nice. things about collecting as well is that, uh, um, you know, not every great wine is $1,000. There's amazing, some amazing nice? wines that are under the radar. That's <laughs> yeah. part of the, one of the, one of the <laughs> fun things about collecting wine is finding the wines that are underappreciated and um, just and because it doesn't. Typically, they're from Sonoma. And, and Sam, <laughs> yeah, Sam just yeah, dropped something. in with a, a boatload of uh, canned, new canned wines. What, fresh, what you got there? Fresh Sam? cans. Fresh cans. Fresh cans. Here. <laughs> Second opening of the day. <laughs> first beer of the day. Beautifully there. Uh, well, first on air. <laughs> <laughs> what is? What how'd, we the, how'd the canning go? The canning is going. Uh, oh, interesting. Well enough that Sam uh, could walk away and be here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I made a plan. We have more people so that I'm not stacking can stack pallets of cans right now. Yeah. But it's going good. You know, the canning is um 
You have beer people and a winery, and there's um, it's like a different language. Like this, you know, the the can crew and the winery crew are they both speak English, but they don't understand each other. So there's you know there's always some some complications, uh, but it, now it's going, it's going good. Well, and the difference is is that spillage is known in beer because beer doesn't cost a lot to make but right spillage and wine is bad there's you know there's not a lot of sp- there's like the first you know right when you open up the pumps and and fill all the lines and you get some that comes out but uh there's, you mean, there's they don't like overfill the cans and then put the tops on them no the can the can gets um i have it on video you'll see there'll be a reel um uh it they fill it pretty accurately okay um you know the first thing there's there's uh the liquid nitrogen dosing happens and then at the same time the next five cans on the line get filled and you know it's moving slow enough that it doesn't really like there's not a lot of splash out right um so you know i don't know we'll lose a little bit but um i've heard some horror stories of can line loss but we don't have that on this line any mice in the in the in the bottles or cans <laughs> no strange they're, they're all um right they're all <laughs> well sealed <laughs> thank you for getting uh, not everyone gets that yeah, right no no. <laughs> no i actually well, so have the cleaned. album maybe i should donate it to the hoser a you hoser a my friend's a cop and he drank this beer and he got sick eh? <laughs> My dad's Canadian, so we're uh, yeah. We're and Sam has no idea what we're talking is this about. Hot shots? Oh. No. no, what is the? Oh no, what is that? Movie? Strange brew. Strange brew. There we go. I knew it was slightly, just slightly before yeah. my time. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Did it come um, out the same year? Probably the eighty. I was gonna say the eighty six. That's awesome. Well, uh, who's, Sam, who's we actually who was the winemaker in Helen Turley? Was it Helen Turley? It was right. And you know, '86, that was a beautiful year too. Good year for Mets, New York Mets. <laughs> that was the year I was in Susanna and Dennis's wedding. So wedding photos with the Grateful Dead for me. That was '86. Okay. Nice. Yeah. yeah, pretty much downhill since then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was my first harvest. So whenever I get to taste something Your from '86, okay, yeah, it's always a big deal. Because I don't, I think when those, all those wines came out early, I didn't have an appreciation of them. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't really realize, um, realize how, what it takes to make wine until I still don't really realize what it takes to make wine. <laughs> and learn new lessons exactly. every day. Right. Which exactly. is true. Chris, do you, do you feel that way when you've worked at, I mean, you've worked at some larger wineries and worked for your own brand. Um, when you have like young interns and, and cellar rats do you guys try and turn them on to to some of the wines or share wines with them so that they gain some sort of appreciation for what it is they're actually doing? Uh, for sure, especially for like the European interns. I like at least do a couple dinners a year where we open up a bunch of old California wines and be like, all right, you guys can have made great wines over the years in, in Europe and in France. and But California has been making great wine for a long, long time. So it's important for me to kind of like spread the gospel and be and, and, yeah. and let them know that um, and often tasting blind. That's the best way to, to introduce people. I remember mm. doing a Fremark Abbey, York Creek, Petit Syrah, oh. 
um, from 74. I'm all about free And market. everyone was guessing it was, you know, 2005 right, right. Uh, Cabernet and all this stuff. And then, you know, lifting the bag off the bottle and having their heads explode. That's that's one of the joys of collecting, too, is just I, really I mean, that's, breaking through people's preconceived notions of what California can be and, and what it is and, yeah. um, and what we're capable of doing. Yeah. So that's an and it's inspiration. It's purely self-serving for me because I want to know the great wines that have been made here because obviously I'm not interested in what was so special about that free Mark Abbey. It was in a, it must've just been in a time warp, you know, Petitra ages so slowly right. it's yeah. on its own, but then to make it complex and, and aromatic and layered. And, um, it, it just felt like we could drink that wine for another 30, 40 years. It just yeah. seemed the color was so dark and, uh, uh acidity is so fresh and, um, there's a million wines like that that have been made here in Napa Sonoma. So, and, yeah. and Santa Cruz as well. So. Yeah. This what the acidity on this wine is still amazing. And it's not just like on the sides, it's like your entire mouth. Yeah. This thing is just making my saliva glands. Go. It, it's a really beautiful wine. Mm -hmm. you know, like so alive still. And I know, uh, Jared, who's our friend, who's the executive chef at the Fairmont. He, that was a big thing for him is he would, he would actually send some of his line cooks out to local restaurants um, to go out and have dinner. So they, cause a lot of times they're in the kitchen, they don't know what's going on, on in the front of the house. And so he would actually tell them, you need to go out to dinner to a nice restaurant and see why it is it's important that you do what you do because that's the food that's showing up um, on the table in this completely different setting that you're in. Um, and, uh, Speaking of Jared, I just want to let you know, I invited him here today just to kind of talk about Chef Cycle, but he was actually out doing a, a ride today. Um, he, didn't awesome. get a, he didn't get enough. Can you believe that? He's like hooked his, now. His, the chafing, just like build, go from <laughs> chafe to callus and then it doesn't ever go just, away. Right? I, maybe his butt's just so sore, so numb, he can't even feel it anymore. I, I, I um, went for a ride on uh, Saturday morning. And uh, it was a struggle to get through 10 miles. <laughs> <laughs> and I think more than anything else with my lower back was just tired. But um, yeah, you want to take a minute and recap yeah, what you did and while I, we're enjoying this beautiful wine. Okay. And then and then and we'll there's kinda, still time to we'll donate, right? Chris. And then and then um, we'll actually ask Chris who the hell he is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so um, good to know that happens when I'm not here, too. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it was a it was a great three days. We had really beautiful weather. Um, the first day we uh, rode out to essentially, you know, Guerneville, Sebastopol area, down to Tamales and Valley Ford, back to Petaluma, stopped at Petaluma Hills uh, Cannabis Farm for one of the breaks, and then back to Santa Rosa. Um, uh, the second day was um, Chalk Hill. I mean, this this was really a great tour of Sonoma County, except yeah. they didn't hit Sonoma Valley. Yeah. But um, Chalk Hill, um, Alexander Valley, Dry Creek, Russian River, and back to Santa Rosa. Um, and and then at the at the very end, they threw in uh, Reebley Road for us to oh, just like, for... just to say you know a little insult to you know climb this hill. Oh, you're oh you thought you're done? No, right, right, go right. But that like through that barn there and back up. That's like a steep. I mean, it's not like it's long, but basically it's straight up. Yeah, short and punchy yeah. is how someone described it. Yeah, like short and getting punched in the face. Yeah, and then other body part. and then the third day was <laughs> epic because the third day uh, we we went again out to Sebastopol 
uh, Valley Ford, and then uh, along Tamales Bay, mm. um, all the way into Point Reyes, and then came back in Red Hill Road or D Street into Petaluma, and then back to Sebastopol and home. So, but it was like perfect down uh, along Tamales Bay, and that was probably um, the hottest day of the three. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it was beautiful. There was um, about seventy-eight riders. Um, I think currently we're just under four hundred and fifty thousand dollars we've raised. Wow. Um, All right. So you know they say um, one dollar um, is uh, ten meals or ten servings. So uh, and they consider a serving a fruit, a vegetable, and a milk product. Um, so uh, you know it makes a big difference. Right. Um, they this charity doesn't make the programs or this this event doesn't make the programs what it does is it it purchases food for the programs that are already in place by no kid hungry cool. um so and you know you get a bunch of chefs together and that's what they do is they feed people and they get off on feeding people and then you get them start talking about how ridiculous this is that there's how much food is wasted in the world right. um and in restaurants in restaurants and and how to change that and you know dusky estes was a friend of the pod was one of the speakers one night she rode the whole thing um uh and she works with this uh farm to pantry which again we talked about um and just the sheer number of meals that they have provided here in sonoma county for anybody who wants it you know i mean a lot of them are people that work in restaurants a lot of them are people that work in the hospitality industry or in um and a lot of them work in wineries they're vineyard guys you know and it's not that they can't provide for themselves but they understand what it takes to stretch their meals and you know the little bits of things that they can get that are handed off um, and then the elderly also. So at, at any rate, it, it was great. I kind of thought that I might be done after three years, but I, I already signed back. I'll go yeah. again next year. Uh, how so. was the furthest one of the chefs came from? Well, there's a group of Canadians okay. that come from um, Ontario. Yeah, okay. from Can- yeah. You have to. It's careful because you know they they walk like <laughs> you, they talk like you. You know, you got to right. keep an eye on them. Totally. Um, <laughs> I, never mind. And Bart, what did, what did you guys? What I was most curious about is I almost wanted to go there at night just to hang out with the crew after they had been riding all day. Did you guys get a little loose at night, you know or was everyone just in bed? It th- there was not a lot of looseness. Um, you know, you've just ridden a hundred miles. Um, you've they always have a bunch of snacks when you first finish. There's beer and wine. Um, uh, but a lot of people don't drink. There's a lot of people in the restaurant industry, you know, as you guys know, that are in recovery and don't drink. Because um, <laughs> they don't hang out with you. <laughs> Did anyone actually stop at the uh, cannabis farm? Well, that was one of the and stops. Par- right. yeah, who no, didn't, who didn't right. get back on right. at the cannabis farm is the question. Right. Um, Maybe that's why he's riding again today. He yeah, forgot his keys and his phone right. up there. I'm going to go find my bike. <laughs> His one hitter is dropped somewhere along the route. Um, so yeah, no, I mean, you know, there there were basketball go- games going on, so we were watching the games and stuff. But you right. know, by nine o'clock, everybody's pretty much done because breakfast is at five, and you're on the road at six thirty. Yeah. I have to say, one of the coolest things is like the first five or six miles, the CHP um, leads us out through town so no stop signs no stop lights oh that's cool um you know they just are roaring by you and you're just flying through it so that's pretty fun and then there was a the last day 
um, there was, it was, it was either two days and then you had one day of volunteering, which they went out and planted at a farm, um, or three days. And there was a group of us, um, on the third day that might've been the last ones, um, on the ride. DFL. <laughs> we all finished and it was, and it was, it was beautiful actually. Um, but, uh, we had CHP, um, escort back into town also. And that was also very nice. Nudging you along. Well, Nudging. nudging you along. And you know, if you hit a stop sign and you have to get off your bike and stop, um, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, the worst thing kidding. in the world. Yeah. So once you're moving, you're moving. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, uh, Jared's all hot to get a bunch more people from Sonoma County. Um, uh, Aerie was the same thing, you know, get a bunch of people, try to keep this thing going. I mean, there's no reason we shouldn't have a bunch of people and it is fully supported. Like if you decide at mile 40, you want to get in the car and, you know, bump ahead 20 miles, they'll bump you ahead 20 miles and, um, let you keep going. So, yeah. um, well, give people just a little, how can they still donate money? If so you can know? still, you can still donate money at, um, uh, chefcycle.org. Um, if you want to, you can just make a donation to the organization. That's great. Um, our team here from Sonoma County was butcher, baker, bottler, and babes. Um, and you can, uh, uh, thank you, Sam, for your donation, by the way. And John, of course you uh, also, I should, I should um, have been a dollar for every mile that I wasn't riding with you guys, but I came up a little <laughs> short. <laughs> That's right. Next year, Sam, next year. next year. Um, and you can, and you could donate there. And that'll be going through the end of June. And um, I'm sure I'm going to get a phone call about the 1st of July. And they're going to say, so we're planning next year. So, And I, well, I'm going to try to rally them to come through Sonoma Valley next year. Well, I think. Because I think they that's how the I found them. First year, maybe it was the first year that you rode. I remember that they did it. Uh, and one of the stops was right across the street here at William Sonoma. So that was actually before I did it. That was before you did and, it. And, and that's how I found it okay. because they were in town. Uh, the, all I know is there was orange balloons everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I want to get them to try to come through because I think if we have enough of a connection, we, it, it's really cool. The first year I rode it, they, there were a bunch of kids out um, along the course when we rode by some schools. Ringing bells. And ringing bells and cheering you on. And there's nothing like it, you know, that sort of motivation um, and you know, don't fall in front of the kids. Don't right. fall in front of the kids. Right. Don't fall in front of the kids. <laughs> At any rate, thanks for, you cool. know, all of your support. And well, that's awesome. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. So, all right. So, uh, Chris Tynan, <laughs> um, I mean, we, <laughs> just for the record, how long was the show going before I got About an hour? <laughs> okay. <laughs> we, I mean, we know Chris, um, his wife is a friend of the podcast, Katie Bunchu. Um, also winemaker at Cliff Lady and then former used to work She's at not. She, no, no, you, no, I am. Right. right. She, no, no, no. And uh, Katie needs no introduction. We just right. say the name everybody knows. Right. <laughs> Jeff's sister. And, um, yeah. Jeff's sister. Jim's daughter. And then yeah. you, used, daughter. Uh, you used to work at Colgan, I think. Um, that was one of my internships. Yeah. And okay. then uh, and then I was ended up being assistant winemaker there for about five years. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. Kane. Kane, that was my first harvest in 04. Oh, no way. Up on Spring Mountain. Yep. Okay. And so you came to this, and we should talk about that. I, I know that you're from New York originally, um, but you you came through this more of through an internship and working your way through. You you didn't come 
through Davis or Fresno or anything like that, correct? No, I, I was born in New York, but I really grew up in Houston, Texas. And um, after college, ended up running a restaurant in Santa Fe, New Mexico for about five years. And that was my, um, that's where I really got into wine. What sort um, of restaurant? Um, it was in the, I mean, all of Santa Fe is kind of artsy now, but <laughs> it, in the main little art section is called Canyon Road in Santa Fe. And I worked at this little bistro that, um, um, it wasn't the best uh, on the colon. It wasn't on the culinary map anywhere in, in Fancyville, um, but on a good day, it could be a really great restaurant. And um, one of my jobs when I started managing it was to buy the wine for the restaurant and not knowing much about wine back then. Um, it was quite a crash course in, in learning because I had five different distributors coming by every week, pouring me on different wines from all over the world. And, um, a couple of aha moments with wine, um, specifically Chateauneuf when I was really young and, and still learning, got me really thinking, wow, this, this wine thing's pretty amazing. Maybe I should just move to Napa and see if that's what I want to do. Didn't know anybody, didn't have any connections out in Napa um, and moved out here in, in, in Napa to in 2002. Um, and so really came from the restaurant side in, in a lot of ways, just pouring wines and cracking wines and learning about wines. And I took the wine list from about five different selections to about 45 by the time I left so from all over the world, Chateauneuf and, and, and Bordeaux and Burgundy and um, California, Sonoma, all over. So what was that aha moment? And what was the wine, if you remember that? And and what was it that was made it an aha as opposed to just another bottle? There's There were a couple early on. Um, one, when a distributor just came back from France and he had just brought back some wine for his own personal cellar. Um, it was, a, I think it was an, an 88 or 98 or 99 Chateauneuf from Chateau Le Nerth, which isn't a super amazing wine or a winery, but um, it was like, whoa, what what is this this is not cabernet this is something else and you know oh that's grenache and Syrah and Bouvedra, all those great varietals that they go into to chateauneuf um and so that was kind of one of those great with a great meal you know where the food and the wine come together and, and an amazing thing um and then one night a buddy and i cooked dinner for for two girls we we're like let's invite these girls up to our house we'll cook you'll cook i said you'll cook dinner and i'll choose the wines and we'll pair them pair the wines on each course and um -wah -wah. <laughs> yes impress them yeah so we um we did uh um let's see there was a 96 gruet champagne not from new mexico but from the actual family old family place <laughs> in blanc de blanc from from champagne and the second course was an eye block fume blanc from mandavi yeah. um which makes you know, pretty amazing. The, those wines are pretty amazing that they still make there from those vines planted in the forties. Right. Um, and second or third up was an Alexander Valley silver Oak, um, which was showed beautifully that night. And then for dessert, we had a Chateau Cedarot from I think 96. And I remember all those wines. Like I had them yesterday, but I can't tell you the girl's name that we were trying to invite up there because <laughs> I got really too, too far into the wines to, 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 but that, that was definitely one of those nights where the, you know, the wines took center stage and, um, and were they into the wine as much as you were? I, I probably not much. I don't think anybody's into wine as much as I am. So I, um, but yeah, I mean, I have to well, think about like what you were saying about, um, how important it is to try these other wines and, 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 and expose people to wine. When, when I was at Kenwood, all we drank was Kenwood wine. 
and there was plenty of it around and you could yeah. taste whatever you wanted but that's what we drank and it was usually all current vintage stuff and it wasn't until my next job where they started going well you have to try this and you have to try this that i started to go well wait a minute there's there's a whole world out there mm -hmm. um I don't know. You you were probably exposed to wines from all over from the start. I mean, or were they all Uncle Tony's? It wines? was it was for the the beginning. It was all Uncle Tony's wines that I remember. The ones that I remember. Um, it wasn't really until like Uncle Bobby, uh, un unrelated uncle, um, <laughs> came and started spending more time out here that there would be different wines at the table. Okay. Um, I mean, you know, I guess it, it would have been kind of the same lineup of Sonoma producers out at would have been on the table before, before that other, you know, yeah, Kenwood and Glenelg yeah. and Benziger yeah. right. and um, you know, it was before Enterprise worked with Laurel Glen, right? Um, you know, maybe there was a, you know, occasionally you'd get something from that was made at you know Glenelg Vineyards, then now Reprie, right? Um, but. It wasn't like, yeah, it was Uncle Tony's wine. Right. Especially before there was any money to buy anybody else's wine. Well, right, right. exactly. And and that that's a huge part of it, right? right? Brian just walked up with a 1986 cab from Kenwood, Jack London oh, Vineyard. Nice. Where the hell did you, you the, get this? Did you get the Durand? I can handle it with the also. I'm not used. To, I'm not used to the. Well, this is no time like the present to learn right, so on Durand live on air. You can't time. go wrong with Durand. It's, you want to go grab it? It's the greatest invention. So. Chris, yeah, how did you get so into wines? What was it about it? Um, you know, there was another thing that kind of, uh, kind of solidified what I was learning at the restaurants, and that was going through. I, uh, when I was 25, I did this thing called the Camino de Santiago. It's this pilgrimage um, in the northern part of Spain yeah. to the technically it's to the remain the suspected remains of of Saint James, also known as Santiago in Spanish. There, there's actually a Camino de Sonoma going on right now. Um, the, it, it's it, one of the people we interviewed for the vintners and growers um, position was participating in it, and I think last week they walked through Sonoma Valley. Um, and it's going to end up at Fort Ross. I'm sorry. It just, you made me think of that. And yeah. Um, so anyway, go ahead. No, I, I mean, I, it wasn't a religious thing for me. It was just thought it would be a cool way to go across Spain for very cheap. And I love hiking. So that was, it was like a win-win for me. And when you're doing that, you're, I started on the border of uh, France above Pamplona and I walked 450 miles West and doing that, you walk through, um, uh, up in the hills um, near Pamplona, above Rioja is a beautiful wine region. Um, and then you go through Rioja, you go through Bierzo, you go through Galicia, um, and every little town you stop in, um, most of these are little medieval towns that haven't changed. They're, you know, 50 people living in them. Isn't that cool? And that's where this, the wine really matched the little local, local cuisine, you know, you know, from the trout up in the, the rivers up in, um, up in the Pyrenees um to oh no no go on the side go, oh, go, oh. don't go through those holes again there you go so we're talking about the durand here yeah <laughs> you don't go through the holes no, again don't do that okay yep all right we're learning on yeah. air it's, it's, sam, a, it's a common mistake sam but that way we, you what are we pull, using here use, it, I'm sorry, it's wait, called wait. the the pause on the real durand, durand uh and it's essentially like a mashup of an osso and a traditional corkscrew um designed specifically for 
pulling out. No, just use the uh, use the. No, yeah, put your fingers on the thing now. No other <laughs> nope. other things. The there you go. Now. And then you can just pull straight up. No, no, no. Nope. Don't turn straight, anymore. Straight just straight up. Straight up. Yep. Like I'm this. getting out of the way. <laughs> use use your fingers like a fork. Like just lift it straight up. You cannot lose. There you go. And I say this after breaking two corks, right? Right. right. No, As we were opening earlier, we, there was no cameras um, right. when you were opening <laughs> your bottles. Weren't did the corks come out good on those? On the older one, I just was him handing okay. it, and I just ripped it out. Oh, so good. when you did this um, wow, pilgrimage, going, were you with a group or you went solo? I went by myself. Okay. Yeah, but you're walking along with people. There's people that are walking along their way. Right. And you're meeting people from all over uh, Europe and Canada. And, and there was a Brazilian guy that wrote a book about it years ago. So there's lots of Brazilian. There's lots of just Catholics right. all over the world right. that are do, doing it for, for. And it was great. I mean, it was. I learned more about wine on that trip than um than i had before um and so and that was the thing where the food the local food matched the local cultivar matched the it just went together seamlessly like when you're in galicia and you're drinking albarino you're eating it with octopus that's just come out of the ocean that day and they're grilling it and it just the, those two combinations it's just you know beautiful I, I mean isn't it interesting or just i find it interesting that you know europe is such a we're trying to create those things and figure out what are those things that go with our local wine, right? There, it's just so part of the culture. It is what it is. And it seems like here in the United States, we're trying to... Um, well, they had a thousand years head start on us. Right. So give us give well, us time. Right. Well, and they also, by the demands of the region, don't grow as many varieties in particular right. places. Like, right. you know, they have the variety that they grow there. And, and there are some people playing with other things, but you know, you go to these places and you expect those varieties, right? right. So, and maybe they picked those varieties because it went well with the food that they're making, right? You know, right. who knows? And well, and and that and food is and that right. food is was just from that area, right? Like right. you know, there's a reason why there's you know sheep where there are in Spain and right. and not in other areas. And by the way, uh, Brian did a great job on the cork. Okay. That was that was your first After your first Durand moment. Direction, yeah. Well, you know, um, I say don't use those holes because sometimes they don't match up with the outside with the of the bottle. bottle. Yeah, yeah I know that, sense. and and I think the holes are just to keep it in it's as your right. yeah. It's like a storage thing. Exactly. Um, we have, I think, Sonoma County is Duck and Pino to me is a sort of a known. Yeah, um, I mean, we are in the flyway, right? Right. We got Jennifer Reichart um, yeah. growing the ducks, and then we. Um, does she even make Pinot? I don't even know. They do have, she did have a, uh, they just released, remember last time she was here, I think they were just releasing their first, her first Pinot Noir wrap. It would Pinot. make sense. Yeah. I, I think she raises ducks. She doesn't grow them. Because she, uh, they don't yeah. come out of the ground. Well, they actually you know. come in the mail, believe like, it or not. The babies. Ducks yeah. in mail? Ducks by mail? Duck mail. Mail, mail duck. Um, because, yeah, no, she made her, she was releasing her first Pinot because she worked at like Literai or something as coming up, right? Right. Yeah. With uh, Ted. Ted. Yeah. Teddy. Okay, Chris. So, um, can we try this Laurel Grand, uh, Glen? Uh, Kenwood. The Kenwood? Oh, it's Kenwood. Sorry. It's yeah. like Kenwood. So, this was yeah. a wine that Bart would have made. This was my first. This was a wine that Bart would have. I, I did not make this wine. wine. You like no. <laughs> ran some hoses and no, you drove a forklift. I no, this would have been. I would have driven the tractor in the vineyard and I would have hauled the grapes to the winery and helped with crushing and pressing. I was not allowed in the cellar at that point. Right. Like uh, I was I would 
no so we didn't have we had five ton gondolas that we used to haul everything out of and so my job was to go to the winery you know pull leaves pass um pass picking bins to the thing and um and back to the winery deliver right. the grapes turn around go back go back out to the field help help process and go back so but would you have gone up to the jack london vineyard do you we, remember we were there every yeah. all the time i'll tell you my jack london vineyard story and it would have been this year um it's lunchtime and we're by milo's house milo shepherd which was right. uh, jack london's great grand nephew i think it was that sounds right um yeah. and milo said i'm going in for lunch take this gondola back to the truck and I'll see you after lunch. And I said, Milo, I don't know how to drive your Caterpillar, right? And he says, well, he goes, sit down. He goes, it's just like that one. You put it in gear here. And he turned around and walked away and he put it in gear. <laughs> and off I went and I came back from lunch and he, Milo walks up to me and he kind of looks at me and walks around me and he goes, I didn't hear about any grapes on the ground. You're back, so you must have figured it out. And that was it. And our relationship changed then. Like, all of a sudden, I was okay. Right, because I didn't fuck it up. I didn't fuck it up. <laughs> and I didn't ask too many questions. I just did what I was told. And, um, yeah, so. Did Milo live in the house that's, like, up by the old winery site? Kind of as you go in there? No, that's where that's where Marty Lee um, lived. Oh, okay. And Marty's wife, I think, still lives there. Yeah. Um, Milo's house was down... Um, kind of below one of the redwood groves. Um, okay. He had a little wine cellar down there. Pretty cool like spot. Past the pig palace and yeah. around that corner. Yeah. Yeah. Down, down that hole, down yeah. that canyon. So. so talk about these two vineyards that we just had. How far away are they from each other as the crow flies? Um, the Olive Hill and the Well, so Olive Hill is, you know, kind of valley floor or in those rolling knolls of right. Sonoma. Um this is at about 600 feet, maybe 800 feet. Probably, um, sick, probably from the bottom to the top of the vineyard. It's a eastern side uh, or western side? Uh, western side. Western side. Um, uh, kind of sits down kind of in a pocket valley there. Um, the mountain, you know, goes up pretty steep um, past Benziger. And then where the Beauty Ranch is or where the Jack London Ranch is, it's, it's not flat by any means, but sort of benchland benchland yeah. and and this the cabernet was planted on a bench um right next to the um the old barns right. and the old winery site um it was originally planted during the time that london was there i think definitely but not this vineyard right. Right. Uh, this vineyard i think was planted um in the 70s um and some of this block um is still mm. original planting mm. um was it a state park by then Oh yeah, by absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that was always the battle, you know, for the state right. park because um, it was it was a it was a historical park. So it was Jack London Historical Park, and there was a right. large. And this happened during the time I was there. There was a large area of eucalyptus, mm. um, and the park wanted to get rid of it because it wasn't native, and so they went in and they cut down a bunch of trees and then they sprayed roundup also of course. or some sort of herbicide which burned Napalm. some of the burned oh, some shit. of the vineyard <laughs> right and milo's big thing was you know they said well it doesn't belong here and milo said it's a historical park he right. planted jack london planted those right eucalyptus. and that's part of the history um so but I love it, the mouthfeel on this wine it's you know it was always a cool area without a doubt and um and you know on the herbal side 
Um, there was also Cabernet Franc, uh, Pinot, and Merlot planted, and Zinfandel all planted up there at the time. Um, but it was always kind of the the herbal um, thing. And then at Benziger, of course, that was part of one of the reasons why they went after, you know, those really full-bodied, you know, really ripe wines of like tribute. Sort of counter trying to get away from the herbal part um but the it's herbal cold, part's kind of the there. yeah it's they, like almost north facing yeah and if you've got the eucalyptus mint chocolate chip in there like you could put this against martha's vineyard and like it would people would have a hard time telling the difference i think totally yeah except until the price tag came exactly awesome well sorry i just wanted to pull this out because i knew we had this sam's dad brought a bunch of wines for us just to kind of um, pull out every once in a while. It's definitely got it. When, when you said 86, I was like, oh, wait a minute. I think there's an 86. In yeah. there. It's definitely yeah. got more funk than the BR Cohen. And a little um, more brown sugar. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, a little more meaty gamey, at least to, to me, where the, the cone was a little more pure. Do you know what kind of um, barrel aging they were doing these days? I mean, I know they didn't let you in the cellar, but did you? No, it was, I mean, th there were a whole bunch of old whiskey barrels old right now redwood um, redwood red, tanks and uh redwood tanks were gone by that point okay. um but there were oak tanks um to me this has that signature kind of uh, crab boil bay leaf um aromas to it yeah. that mm. that just seemed to whatever oak they were using back then limousine yeah. forest or yeah. whatever they could get it's just a lot of those wines have that it's not i i i don't hate it right like and that's what it was like it was it. it was limousine and allier oak you know wide-grained um, and it was what was available. It was a lot of Demtos. Um, yeah. A lot of, a lot of um, Nadalier. Nice. I mean, they're not dead. Still no. a lot of no, life there. Lovely. Yeah. It might be the sleeper wine. We'll, we should taste it in a couple hours. And... Yeah. All right. So let's get back to Chris. Okay. I think I got to. We did invite him to be on the show. To I talk know. about his wine? To become what? the Sonoma History Show. <laughs> <laughs> I like See I like what happens history. when you bring a. An, um, 86 BR cone cab. Yeah. We derailed. Waxed, we waxed. Derailed. Poetic. You got 86 Kenwood and BR cone and then 2022 Rosé from a vineyard that was planted for Kenwood. Right. 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 Circle of life. It all comes full circle. All right. I'm going to go back on the canyon line, you guys. <laughs> so, Chris, um, I think we were last at, we kind of skipped around. Um, you you started at Kane. The um, first harvest I worked was in 2004 at Kane. Yeah. Okay. And then- Wait, How did you get that job though? Um, when I moved to Napa, I thought, who's gonna hire me? Cause I don't really have any experience. And that was the time where as an intern, you, it was best if you had at least a little experience uh, in either in school or, or, or working. And since I didn't have that, I um, right when I moved to Napa, I started taking classes at the junior college there at Napa Valley College, and they have their own vineyard and their own winery. Um, so I took enough enough credits where in 04, I thought, hey, I know a little bit enough not to, you know, mess something up. So um, so that was my resume, working in restaurants and, and taking yeah. some classes at Napa Valley College. No, that's how I got in. Didn't know anybody, just they hired me, which was great. Wow. Yeah. And so what was the most surprising thing about your first harvest? Like what was something that you, that, that, that was eye-opening? Like was it um, 
the sheer amount of fruit, the sheer amount of hours. Was the it moisture? The, the, yeah. I mean, yeah. How, how wet your feet were every day. Because you were a cellar rat, essentially, right? Yeah. I and then I lucked into working um, in the lab a little bit, too. It was a, you know, I was technically the lab intern, which the lab was about six feet feet by six feet. It was a very small lab. So I got to work in the cellar a lot too. I think um, what I learned most there was that everything that went on in the cellar, there's no way you could have ever learned in a classroom. Like you really just doing it and being there um, was, was essential. Um, and I also think, you know, learning what I learned from uh, Chris Howe um, and Francois, who was the winemaker at the time, just, they were, they came of a very French background. So Harvest was important and the work was great, but it was also camaraderie. And we had two, sometimes three hour lunches with opening wines. And, you know, we worked our, our tail off, but we also, um, uh, you know, enjoyed our time there and, and really like opened a bunch of wines. And, and it was, it was quite, I, it was the closest thing to working in France that I could have probably gone into in Napa. Uh, there it came. They were just extremely, extremely gracious. And I came in, I think, a little cocky thinking, you know, I've, I've tasted all these great wines in the world and I've got two classes or three or four classes at the Nat Valley College. I came in like thinking I was, I came in a little cocky, think I knew everything about wine. And I soon, how old were you? soon realized I was 27, 28. I okay. uh, soon realized I didn't know my ass from a, yeah. <laughs> my elbow as yeah. far as it goes to making wine. And, and just, the, and you know, the amount of people it takes to make wine is, is, is one of the things like you just can't do it on your own. You, you need the people that help you pick the grapes and farm the grapes and it just, and the people that work in the winery, but beyond that, it, you know, bottle sales people and barrel sales people and right. people that cut trees down in France and make the corks in Portugal, the people that deliver yeah. stuff like the people that the supply chain to get us to be able to do what we get to do every year is, it's yeah. pretty amazing. And I think the, um, the pandemic really instilled that in a lot of people. Like we're all connected. We really are all yeah. are connected. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was a great learning lesson for me though, early on They kind of kicked my ass a little bit and said, you don't really know what you're talking about. You need to, you need to keep learning if you're going to be a good winemaker. So. Yeah. I remember one guy we had worked for us one time. He, he actually said to one of the younger guys, he said, I kind of thought I'd be walking around with a glass tasting a lot more with the winemaker. <laughs> <laughs> and all i mean i think all he, that kid did the entire harvest was fill barrels right yeah. and he probably wasn't doing it fast Get in enough there. right like you know you fill two barrels at a time and you know with therefore one valve should be open all the time right chris right exactly <laughs> exactly um and i think a lot of times interns at the end of harvest they don't really understand what they've actually learned you know that was for me early on i you know i i had a feeling at the end of my harvest, it came like, gosh, I wish I had done, been able to do more. I wish I'd been able to do this, that, and this, and that. Um, but then my net, you don't really learn that to the next harvest. You're like, oh, I know how to do this. And I, I know how to do this. I know how to hook up a pump. And right. like the simple things that you have to to do to learn. And um, and I often tell that to interns now, like, okay, you didn't get to do this. You didn't get to do that. But give it six months and realize what you've actually learned. Right. And that's hard for young kids to, to kind of, cause they want the secret answer. They want to tell you the recipe to make a hundred point wine. And you're like, uh, <laughs> it's just, there's no recipe. It doesn't happen. You, you just have to, you have to do it yourself. Yeah. And hundred point wine's not all it's cracked up to be just learning being here and experiencing it is the most important, important part. 
so what is it like now? Um, how, like how many interns do you bring in a year? With your current, with, with your current full, your full-time. We position. do five or six. Yeah. Um, and it's getting harder and harder to find interns. Any from abroad? Yeah. Well, you know, COVID kind of killed that for a couple of years, but now we're getting a, we're getting more interest from South America and, and Europe again. So we're getting more applications like that, but there's just so many different wineries and so many different places they can go. And, um, so it's definitely, um, something we're, we kind of struggle with every year. Right. We always end up with, and, lo, and lo, we always want to have local people too, if, they, if they're willing and available. Well, sure. Cause then you also don't have to house them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which was always something that we always had was, you know, you'd have people that were enthusiastic and wanted to be there, but you, you know, you need to help them get there. And, um, Napa you know, it's tough to find housing. Right. For, I mean, you young kids that, yeah, you essentially you know, did it, you yeah. know, um, you went through it. That's why I was wondering like what you guys are able to do there and, and stuff. And well, when, when Buena Vista swaps, uh, with Hungary and Tokai, they set the kids up at Santa Rosa junior college so they can stay there over the summer. Oh, oh like and, in the dorms or something. Yeah. And huh. you know, we donated to bed. We donated a bunch of other stuff and you know, I just yeah. set the kids up. Right. That's so good. they don't have to worry about it, you know? Yeah. And then they're hanging out with other young people yeah. too. That's nice. Yeah. And they swap. So they send one intern and they get one intern from Tokai. Yeah. Oh, that's great. All right. So when did you leave that position? And like, how did you, how did you move on? Was it a conscious decision? Was it forced? Uh, from Kane? Yeah. Oh, well, it was just an internship. So I just yeah. worked from, you know, August to November, December. Oh, that was that? Okay. Um, and then the next two summers, I worked for a guy named Dana Zaccone, who who is a vineyards consultant, and he did irrigation management. So he, pressure bombs and neutron probe. That was my job for two summers, which was another great education. It just kind of lucked into um, uh, doing that. I mean, I did vineyards all over Napa, Sonoma from the most expensive grapes in the valley to like some of the cheapest farming. Will so, you explain those terms though? <laughs> so yeah, so when you're in irrigation management, you're kind of giving advice to growers on whether they should irrigate or not and what their soil profile looks like. So a neutron probe is a way to measure soil uh, moisture. So you're, you're, you're literally dropping a little piece of radioactive uh, material into the ground at different levels and that's reacting with the hydrogen ion of, of water. That's a common thing. Yes. Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, Never heard that. Yeah. It's well. It's more esoteric. If you're, if you're a viticulturist, you know what neutron, uh, neutron probes are. Right. Um, and then pressure bomb is what you do. Um, it's another way of measuring how much water the vine is taking up. You basically cut a petiole off the vine at a certain time of day. Um, you put it into a pressurized container and you push the water out and you see how long it takes to push the water out. And that measures oh. how much water the vine is pulling out of the ground. Right. Um, and those two measurements combined gives, uh, you know, information on. Do you take a shoot from the top or the bottom? What? Uh, I believe it's been, you know, it's been a couple of years since I've done it, but you want it um, somewhere in the mid, lower to mid section of the vine. Um, Cause that's more consistent and you do multiple leaves on multiple vines in a, in a block. So you get a, you get an average of what the what the demand is right so being able to see all those vineyards i imagine that was also one inspirational and two um mind opening right because as you said all different sort of viticultural practices um and seeing as you said on the cheap side all the way up to um very high-end farming um 
and and what, were you able to kind of see the results of that and understand it or not enough time doing that you could just see the vineyards that were farmed by kind of more of corporate viticulture companies that kind of just come in and napalm the vineyard with roundup and right. sprays and you just there's nothing living in those vineyards right. there's right. no insects there's no um it's yeah. just no soil right. yeah and you can see that no there's no thinning or canopy management and the and the vine you taste the fruit after a while when you see it just tastes like nothing and mm. um and you go to the more um farmer focused clients that are more interested in quality and those grapes are going into high-end wines like scarecrow and um and just the attention to detail that's going on in the vineyard and um, just it doesn't take long before you realize what yeah. good farming is and what bad farming is right and so that was a great education and then just the diversity of napa and sonoma the soils the aspects you think you know napa or sonoma and then you head up some canyon you've never been to and there's this amazing vineyard and right. um, so there's a lot of hidden gems out there still to be discovered that's one of the things i learned um but yeah to your question it was it was quite educational it was pretty foundational right in, in my early, I mean, early I, times right and i guess i was going with it is was that what helped kind of focus what you wanted to do in the business because you could have got a job working at a big winery and and just you know been a middle manager and processed and work for a corporation that pays well and their security or you could try to find a smaller place where you know quality was the focus and that's kind of the way you went and i was just kind of wondering like obviously your love of wine is probably drove you that way also. Yeah, that that's, it's a great point. I think I really lucked into that first, first internship at Kane in that it was small. I was have been, I was doing multiple Behringer. jobs. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's tough for some people. They, sometimes people work their first internship in New Zealand at a big conglomerate where they're just making Sauvignon Blanc in, you know, giant million ton tanks. And right. that's what they think winemaking yeah. is. And they just get disillusioned right on, right away. So, was very lucky to, to work in a small place. And then coming from the restaurant, White kind of spoke earlier where we were a good restaurant, but we weren't great. I was looking to kind of, with the winemaking, I was like, you know, I want to try to do something at the highest level and um, do something where people are really making great wine. At least other people consider that they're doing great wine. And so that was kind of the stepping stone. I was looking to, to do the next jump would be someplace that's doing it small and doing it high end and... Um, so what and, were you looking at? Were you were you kind of shopping around, looking at where you wanted to work? Uh, yeah. Well, my next internship was at 05 at a little place called Blanquier in Yonville. Um, it's just next to Dominus. And the winemaker actually was Helen Turley at the time. And I, just by reputation, I knew she was a good winemaker and at least well thought of in the, in the valley. Um, and it was a small place. Um, and I could work there after the the viticulturist's uh, job in the summertime. Um, and so that was my next my next jump. And then in 06, was hired by Marco Bear, who was kind of a protege of Helen Turley when he was still at Colgan. So he hired me on in 06 as, um, as like a seller master. Um, he luckily left quickly in early 07. So I was promoted assistant winemaker pretty quickly, <laughs> um, being in the right place at the right time. Um, and again, being in a very small winery with uh, just the winemaker and myself, so just a crew of two, I pretty much did everything you yeah. could possibly think of as, as a system winemaker there. Um, and that's where I, it was where a time where I was thinking, ah, do I need to go back to Davis and get a master's or a PhD? And kind of thought of Colgan as my my master's degree. I was like, I, 
I, I couldn't imagine leaving and not being able to work a harvest. That was right. unfathomable to me just to do that. So that was my master's degree and, and staying there at Colgan. They have a great cellar there that they shared with us and tasting great wines. And um, Speaking of tasting great wines, this is a beautiful cab. And can you tell us a little, yeah. it says old vines on the label? Yeah, so we're tasting the 2012 yeah. Christopher Tynan Malagras Galapavo Vineyard. And this was glad, the second glad he said, said it. Yeah. I was going <laughs> to get to that. It's a tough name. This is um, when I started my own label in 2011. Um, so this is my second vintage that I, I've made of this wine. Um, I lucked into finding these vines. Um, they're planted in 1970. They're on the hills on the western side of St. Helena, about 900 feet off the valley floor. Um, really unique vineyard in that they're um, they're planted just surrounded by oak forest. Um, there's this little ledge that a guy named Ernie Van Asperen planted. Um, Ernie Van Asperen is kind of one of those unknown legends in Napa. He, I think he started Rutherford Hill and he had a wine shop in San Francisco called Ernie's. Um, and he planted this on St. George um, and dry farmed it. So um, I buy it from a guy named- Dry Cornel farmed? Dry farm. Dry. Dry farm. Thank you, thank you. Yep. And so I, I purchased these grapes from a guy named Cornelius Corbett who purchased the vineyard from him in the early 90s. Um, and it's a small little- acre and a half vineyard dry farmed like i said um because against all sort of modern farming techniques it's sprawl you could drive a pickup truck through the vineyard you know it's just wide spacing and it really makes this unique expression of cab that i just kind of fell in love with and i thought oh great this is these vines are are very special and they've been going into like these really cheap wines and not really cared for and um and why was that? Was the owner just not connected or didn't really care? I think, you know, in the 90s and to early 2000s and in, in, in especially in Napa, those kind of old vine, they didn't look like what was getting 100 points, what was getting, right. you know, these great scores. It was all the VSP, right. high octane, you know, very, very ripe wines. And this was, this vineyard's very different. I mean, at the top of the vineyard is very vigorous. So a lot of growth, a lot of pyrazines, a lot of bell pepper in the middle. is kind of this hamburger patty of um, perfect ripening vines. Mm -hmm. And then on the bottom, it oddly, um, usually the bottom is the most bigger section in a, in a hillside vineyard. But oddly, it kind of goes off into the south and it doesn't get as much of the water and it's very ripe. Um, and so the combination of those three sections of the vineyard really makes something unique. and Right. Different. So you were able, are you actually purchasing the entire amount of grapes that's coming out of that vineyard. So yeah. you're getting all three different sections. Yeah. Mr. Corbett um, has um, a bunch of different blocks lower down that he farms. And um, this is the only one that I purchased for, for years. And this is the only one that's dry farmed. And this is the only one that's from, from the seventies. So um, I, I do think it's interesting what you said about, you know, this vineyard would have been overlooked um, by a lot of winemakers during that period, right? Because it wasn't pretty and it wasn't VSP and um, it had, you know, and it was old and there was still a time where in Napa and Sonoma both like, you know, well, what should you do with that vineyard? We should pull it out and replant it, right? Um, and so, uh, but yeah, it's a beautiful wine. It hits on all things. It's like really beautifully aromatic. 
it's rich and voluptuous in the mouth and has totally tannin and, um but um, not uh, but you're not um it's not framed by a bunch of new oak it doesn't i don't i don't get that at all of the oak i just get that richness right um of the fruit yeah i think the intention on the winemaking side was um because when i was back at colgan i realized okay i'm going to be an apple winemaker I, um, I'm going to set out and try to taste all those great wines from Napa Sonoma that people other, the old timers consider legends. And that was one of my, since I'm not going to Davis, I'm not doing this like science background. I need to have these kind of taste sense memories in the, in the brain. Um, and I really took a concerted effort to go back and taste all the great, um, ridges and Maya Camas yeah. and, uh, old Heights, Martha's Vineyard, the Chapelets that Philip Togney made. Um, those are all kind of, you could even back when I was looking, you could still get those wines for, you yeah. know, fifty to one hundred fifty bucks. Now they're quite quite more expensive, but oh God, um, and well stored. Like locally, people that have cellared them well and they haven't traveled from New York and back. So um, I needed to have those in 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 my brain, and um, so that's kind of the inspiration for these wines. I, I thought I want a wine that can that um, can age for 20, 30, 40, 50 years because that that was the as aspiration. Well, I mean. Yeah. I mean, that's quite a statement, actually, right? You mm -hmm. just kind of drop that. But mm -hmm. when you're talking about making a wine that you want to age for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, that's. Well, we just <laughs> we just tasted like, a few of them that I held mean, up. And yeah. just being a, you know, a kid raised in California and, and trying some of the wines from the 70s and 80s. But then also the wines that are coming out today where a, a lot of them are sort of drinkable upon release and not necessarily um made like that mm -hmm. um so i mean that's a that's a bold it's a bold uh, intention it is I mean, it's 100 cases so between 100 150 cases a year so it's a very small small production um but i that was my marketing plan i thought you know yeah. But I think if, if it doesn't sell, at least I can drink. At least I'll make wines that I enjoy, right. and I can drink them for, for the, the next, next 20, 30 years. Totally. And that, that'll be uh, that'll be good enough for me. But I think yeah. it goes right along with his mindset in that where he was going. Like maybe given the opportunity, if it would have worked out right, you would have went back to Davis and learned the science part of it. But you dedicated yourself to like like having a reference about you know what were the wines that were made. Mm -hmm. and and trying to wrap your head around that right um you know and which also goes back to you know what you didn't know when you walked into the cellar and and you continue to learn i'm sure every year you probably have things that you were like that's my lesson for the year right for sure definitely or 12 lessons for the year <laughs> it's always a new learning uh curve every harvest yeah. you think you got it figured out and something else happens for sure where are you making these wines? So I'm able to make them at the in the cellar at Cliff Lady. Oh, yeah. nice. Yeah. And cellar and store them there. Yeah. It's a great okay. place to make wine. And is this the sort of thing where, um, you know, obviously I'm sure you have help, but is it the sort of things where people know that, no, those are Chris's wines, he'll deal with them. Um, 
Uh, are you? Are I do everything with my wines. Yeah, I, nobody else touches them. There you me. go. That's what I was me. looking I do, for. I top every. Right. I top the barrels every two weeks. I, yeah. Hey, I, can we punch this down for you? No, no, no. it's all me. Yep. Yeah, good for you. Yeah, good for you. So, and, and that's hard because when you work at a larger, and I don't even know how large Cliff Lady is. We make around you, twenty thousand cases. A okay, year. so you have people around, and they're like going, "Well, we're doing punch downs," and it's like, "Well, we should punch down those also because they're in the row." And yeah, you have to, um, you have to set your parameters or set your set their boundaries for sure yeah yeah, yeah. good for you how do you say the name of this so Malagra Scalapavo um, so the name of the block Scalapavo. so this uh, this man Cornelius Corbett he um, he's, he's an interesting guy very sweet great comes up with creative names for all his vineyard blocks and this vineyard block was named has been named wild turkey for years for decades um, and it's named wild turkey because it is up in the woods on the hillside and it's not surrounded by any other vineyards it's all oaks and um right around the time the vines go through um verasian grapes start turning color the wild turkeys start coming down into the vineyard and start nailing the grapes so it's a constant battle with shotguns and mylar tape and <laughs> dummies and all sorts of stuff to keep the keep the turkeys what, out what, what works the best uh, I, I won't say that because I don't want to give away his secrets, but um, <laughs> we definitely FEMA, lose. FEMA we definitely lose a lot of crop to to turkeys every year, just nailing the vines and eating the berries. And you know that's part of life. That's part of nature. We're happy to give them a little a little fruit. Um, but obviously, I couldn't put wild turkey on the bottle of alcohol when I started the label, so I decided right. to use the genus species of the Native American, uh, North American turkey. Oh, so that's Malagras Galapavo is. Okay. is the genus species of that. Uh, okay. Very interesting. And and because Chris, I know that you've listened to some of these podcasts, and you know how I am with pronouncing things. What is the last line under for Luton? Right. So. Um, well, the label came about because, you know, when you create your own wine, you have to make a label for it. Right. And that's, that was a, an aggravating thing to try to, you know, gosh, if I make one label, I'm kind of locked into it for a while. Um, and, um, my good buddy, Robert Hunt is a winemaker in Napa. He took me out for dinner one night and he brought a bottle of 1990 Henri Jair, um, and I had gone through all these little different label designs and, you know, I'd done some artwork that I didn't really like. And we tasted this Henri Jair and it was one of the best wines we'd, we'd ever shared together. Um, and his label, Henri Jair's, his name is just a small little thing at the bottom. The vineyard's the most important thing on his label, you know, Gros Parento. Um, and I thought, you know, that speaks to me. I just want to, I want the vineyard to be the most important thing on the label. And I'm just the lowly winemaker and I'll put my name down here. Um, and since I didn't have a family crest that I thought right. I should put on there, it looked right. cheesy. Um, I put a little dedication to buy, my, like the Lassiter's and make your own family crest. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, start somewhere. Right. right? Yeah. Know. Yeah. It I does. Know. It's true. Yeah. yeah. There was some night back in middle evil times right. that started a crest that was, you know, yeah, someone thought they were cocky back then. <laughs> so I dedicated it to my mom's side of the family, the Luton and the Zweifels. That's the fr the French and the the Swiss side okay. of, of my heritage. Awesome. And then the Tynan and then the the Reynolds side, the Reynal is the the um, 
Irish side from my dad's side. Okay. So I thought that would be an appropriate kind of homage to them. That's the awesome. Bottom. Okay. And what is the line going across the top of the label? That is Virgil's invocation to Bacchus. So okay. you're, you're thinking um, Greek Roman era um, uh, when they're making wine, the inscription says, uh, Father, Lord of the wine press, take off your buskins, which are those Roman sandals you see from all the yes. Kirk Douglas okay. movies. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, take off your buskins and join me in the new must. So you're going to stomp on those grapes and right. uh, kind of a cool thing to say at the beginning of harvest. Uh, right. To If you're really believing in these gods of, that are going to help you make a good harvest and make you have you make good wine. Um, so that's from his... Nice. Virgil's invocation to Bacchus. Google it. I mean, again, like so thoughtful. I love it. I yeah. love it, Chris. Almost like a little Easter egg along the top there. And the the, the coloring reminds me of the VHR um, labels. Um, I don't know if you've had much of their VHR uh, Vine Hill Ranch. Oh, um, yeah. I um, I've had their wines before, but I can't recall their label. Yeah. And this is the one that we just poured. Now is the. 2018. 18, I thought I'd show you a kind of an older. I don't have a 30-year library to pull from, like right, like mo <laughs> like some. And so I thought I'd give you a, a chance to try the um, 2018. So this is yeah. unlike a lot of people. This is this will be my new release coming right. out next month. To the 2018 vintage. I kind of hold things back a little bit Ooh. and seller them and um, like warm and inviting. Yeah. Beautiful stuff. There's a big difference between the uh, two cabs. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, again, younger. Yeah. Younger I mean, fruit. This is this is the twelve is what 12, the eighteen yeah. will be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, kind of looking yeah. at it that way, with obviously with vintage differences. Twelve was a great year. Um, eighteen. It was a very different year from 12, actually, right? I mean, larger well, crop, larger crop. Yeah. Later, um, you know, more mild. 12 was pretty warm. Mm -hmm. Wasn't 18 um, that huge bumper crop? It was a big, it was, it was a, a yeah, crop. It was, yeah. it was a bigger crop. Although I bet these vines probably didn't give you much more. That's kind of the great thing about these old vines is watching them through extreme years and that, you know, when everyone's picking out, oh my God, we have six tons an acre or, you know, their tanks are overflowing and like these old vines are just very consistent. Right. Yeah. Um, and years in like 17, um, and 15, which were more drought years, hotter years, those vines, those roots are so deep. They seem to tap into um, those deeper soils. And I remember in, in 2017, when we had that three days of 115 degree yeah. heat, I was driving up to the vineyard, um, about a couple days after that happened thinking, Oh God, am I just going to come up to, dry farm raisins. vines that are just raisined yeah. and you know oh, i was just worried and i came up and the vines were like no no fucking no big deal this right. is just yeah we've we've seen this many this times before, before. Yeah, totally. the vines look beautiful protected no raisining no dimpling they were just wow. but it's also some of that on the western side of the valley whether it's the western side of napa valley or the western side of sonoma valley it's just the it's it's more lush right and yeah. it's not as beat up by those afternoon suns and you know the beating heat it probably has something to do with it also 
I completely agree with that. I think on the east side of, of both valleys, you kind of you need to be on the earlier side of picking if yeah. you really want to have any yeah. fresh acidity and, and I mean, vineyard character because it's you're going to get that heat, you know, that Labor Day heat that's going to bake things out if you're not careful. I mean, there's reasons why the, there's redwoods on on the on the western slopes, right, as opposed to the eastern. Like, there's no redwoods on the east side of Sonoma Valley, right. um, and why same is thing, that? Because it's it's they, they redwoods need water and they need the fog and um, I mean not as much in Napa but there's still groves of redwoods mm -hmm. on the west side for sure um, you know just environmentally more uh, just more friendly to yeah them. you know you're talking about deep roots we had uh, who did we have on from uh, Paso who was talking about no Lodi was talking about 70 80 foot deep roots right but that's because randy, it's grown on sand and, uh, randy yeah. caparoso and greg yeah. uh greg lafollette yeah yeah. That's yeah. Right. yeah i mean it's just it's completely different kind of oh, yeah things but there but it's yeah. just so deep it yeah. was amazed me do you know how deep these runs i don't these we've never run? done any soil pits to tell i'm not not sure yeah well, yeah, a vineyard that small, you're not you're not gonna right. go dig up. <laughs> well, there's another story to this vineyard, which is a little sad, but <laughs> hopefully we can end it on a more positive note. The fires in 2020 um, really hit that side of San Lina hard, right? And um, the old vine, um, you know, normally vines are pretty protected from fire, and that you know the fire kind of comes up to the edge and maybe gets an end vine or something like that. Uh, unfortunately that fire was so fast and so hot and the trunks on the old vines are so full of bark yeah. and so thick that we lost around two thirds of the vines to the oh. fire. So a minuscule production has gotten more minuscule right. than that in 2021, hmm. the first vintage after that, we didn't make any 2020, um, is two barrels. So I'll have about 40 wow. cases of the uh, old vine cab in 2021. So are they going to replant? They're in the process of figuring all that stuff out. Yeah. But yeah. you know, the old vine character was what was special about that, right, that right. spot. And so we'll see, it, it's still a great spot. It's still going to make great wine, even with younger vines, but um, we definitely lost kind of a, a little bit of history there with that, yeah. that yeah. fire. Yeah. Sucks. And with Christopher Tiny and wines, how, what's your total case production per year in general? Since 2011, I've just made around 100 cases of the cab, and then I make some Syrah um, from Bennett Valley from the Judge Family Vineyard, and that's around right. 150 cases, 200 cases sometimes in 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 years. So, a really small production totally. compared to yeah. we're doing a lot of folks. Yeah, um, we've expanded production a little bit in 18 because we've gotten a lot of good feedback, and we'll have a little bit more wine to sell in 2018, this coming release. But so that means you were then sourcing from another vineyard. Yeah, Mr. Corbett, who owns the Old Vine Cab Vineyard, two blocks below him, became available, and so we'll have um, a Corbett family vineyard uh, uh, section that will will be released in 20. Yeah, that'll be released this year from 2018. How do you spell Corbett? C-O-R-B-E-T-T. -T. Okay. And then in 2021, expanded the production a little bit more, but those won't be out for five, six wow. years. So. Yeah. Okay, so then Syrah, did you, you're like, hey, I want to make Syrah, or someone reached out to you and said, hey, I got this really killer Syrah. Are you interested in making wine? I've always made... Um, I've always loved Syrah, yeah. but really fell in love with it when I was at Colgan. Colgan made a little bit of Syrah up on Pritchard Hill. 
and owners Ann and Joe were huge Northern Rhone fans. So we got to <laughs> taste through a lot of their cellar from the great wines from Chave and Jubilee and, um, and then some trips to Northern Rhone yeah. really solidified that. And so when I thought about the straw I wanted to make, I wanted it to be from a cooler climate um, and happened into these vines in 2011, became available, pass it around. Um, although this is a warmer year, you're probably not going to be as much. It's going to be definitely on the cool, on the warmer spectrum. 2013. I mean, for those out there that there are people there will definitely know Judge Vineyard, but uh, you know a fabled Bennett Valley um, Syrah Vineyard and some Sauvignon Blanc also, right? That yeah. they grow there. Yeah, Joe and Gail grow yeah. some Sauvignon Blanc. That yeah. some, some top notch producers. Yeah. Brian, I'm actually you're kind of looking like because I don't I don't know it. where that vineyard is. I don't. Uh, and I drive through Bennett Valley. The Judge Vineyard, I'm thinking of um, um, Chardonnay. Batanzas um, Creek. Oh, you're thinking of the the um, Kongsgard Vineyard. Exactly, Napa. right. But this is um, up Grange Road, um, just down the hill from Matanzas Creek, I think. It's probably yeah. the closest big So Matanzas big is down out there. on the valley floor. And then as you drive up Grange, you get to the Vivio Vineyard, which is kind of on the right-hand side, which does Syrah and um, Viognier. Um, I think so, a little bit of Roussan. So I believe this is on the opposite side. This is on the east side of Grange, right? Correct. Um, okay. And and it's just it's just across the entrance to the Kendall Jackson, um, big Kendall Jackson estate, right? Ooh, I don't know. I don't know if that's up there. I'm not sure. So it's I'm, just up from the Grange, right? Ju right. Just up from the Grange. Yeah, so yeah, right. on the other yeah. side of the road, right. okay. like you said. Yeah. Uh, okay. So you know, without a doubt, um, cool. Um, spot fog comes in both you know through Santa Rosa and then peaks up over the hill there also yeah I definitely love those Syrahs that are more wild game um, this character this vineyard always has this kind of bloody character to it um, whether it be like grilled ribeye juices or um, wild duck duck confit peking duck it's got oh. those kind of aromas to it pepper um, uh, it's so consistent year to amazing. year to year with three different clones that we sometimes I'll ferment separately. I always end up blending them back together in some in some form. But doesn't Steve Law uh, get a lot from Bennett Valley also for his Shiraz? So that's from the Vivio Vineyard, which is yeah. the one I'm most familiar with. And Kieran Robinson, friend yeah. of the podcast, for um, yeah, used to make wines from up there. So yeah, so so see um, R5 and McLaren. Yeah, yeah, beautiful wines. Yeah. yeah, the. Judge, this is beautiful wine. I haven't even tasted it. I just love the smell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Get on it. And so what about, um, can you talk a little bit about the fermentation on both these wines? You know, do you have some... some and oak, too. Yeah. Do, do you have some, some parameters that you always... Um, some practices that you use every year that are tied in, or do you kind of change things up every year? I think one of the things I learned at um, Colgan was that more oak into straw is a bad idea. So my wine, somewhere between five and 15% new oak every year, I, buy, I literally buy like one or two barrels every year for the right. straw. Um, and most of the barrels are five, six, seven uses. Um, and I just feel like Syrah on its own is so aromatic and any new oak really just gets in the way. It's just, it's too much. Um, whereas Cabernet Sauvignon can handle 
you know, 60, 70, 75, 80% new oak and, and just be fine. Um, and as far as the Syrah, the Judge Vineyard, we don't really get the stems ripe enough. They're still pretty green. So I have never really do much stem inclusion. Occasionally, sometimes I'll, I'll take some of the stems that have been stemmed and I'll put it back into a smaller fermenter and kind of, I want to be able to, the ability to be able to pull them out if right. I feel like it's getting too much stemmy character. Yeah. Um, whereas I feel if you commit to the whole tank being going in whole cluster or you're kind of, you're really committing to that. And in. so everything, most of the stem stuff is barrel, uh, excuse me, um, distemmed. And then the Cabernet yeah. is, I just try to get out of the way. The yeah. vineyard on its own is so expressive and so amazing that I really just want to accentuate that old vine character. And um, I do some pump overs, some punch downs when I want a little more extraction. Um, no filtration on anything. Um, I tend to leave things on the lees a little bit longer than most people. You know, we don't really rack until sometimes until bottling. Yeah. So they're on their heavy gross lees their entire elevage, unless is I feel like things need a little a little air. I'm sorry to interrupt. Is that why you can kind of tell like the the cabs definitely have this mouthfeel to them? I mean, there's a there's a richness and a coating um, on the inside of your mouth. Do you think that's from the more extended lees? Um, um... For sure. I think with when you age on lees a little bit longer. Um, as they break down, they're releasing those polysaccharides, those amino acids from the yeast cells, and they're really they're protecting the wine from oxygen, so you're adding less yeah. sulfur, and they really add that kind of creaminess and yeah, um, and yeah, yeah. And this Syrah, I haven't even taste. I I don't even want to taste it because I don't want to be disappointed because it smells so freaking good. <laughs> Brian, he's sitting right across from you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Syrah is one of those grapes that. It seems to be 15% of the people like completely love it. They're in love with it. And then the rest either have had too much yeah. yellow tail or too much crappy overripe Syrah from Paso or Australia that they just yeah. in their mind, they could never really like Syrah. And then no. it's, you know, it's just one of those things that yeah. people either love or hate. But no. I think if they really tried some good examples, they, they would love it as much as i do and where do you think in california leaving paso out of the conversation where do you think in northern california that we grow some of the best syrah i think i don't think napa is a great spot for syrah yeah. so i think you have to go sonoma coast the further west you can get is is makes wines that i that i really like that are yeah. acid driven and and again like i told you i, I want to make the cabs age for 20 30 years my goal with the syrah was the same thing i want i want to i wanted to taste like the 78 Jabolais, I wanted, I wanted to taste that it. great in 20, 30 years. So I really yeah. swung for the fences with the straw as well. You can tell right now, this is very young wine, yeah. very concentrated. To me, it's not even ready to drink yet. Um, right. I want it, I want it to age another, it's just starting to enter yeah. its phase where I think it's fun to drink. Um, but it's still like, oh, it it's is. pretty, it's pretty massive. I mean, Brian, Brian looks very happy. Yeah, I'm so stoked on <laughs> you, this one. You're, I mean, you you've obviously found like two grape sources that you're really happy with, and um, and enjoying making wine from. But you also said, you know, as far west as you can go. Like, are are you actively looking for something farther west? Like, would you would you want to add another skew? Um, are you kind of content with this and do you, do you think that, are there things you want to do differently with both these wines, um, or, or is a new source for a new expression calling you? Yeah, I think I'm always on the outlook or 
on the look for better vineyards and different vineyards. And so, yeah, Syrah on the, you know, true kind of Sonoma coast is, is, is attractive to me. It's a quite a haul from Napa. So that's, wow. that's not, that's, but if it's, if the fruit is worth it, I'm definitely, I'm definitely looking. It's, it's hard, right? Cause you have a full-time job. So you have those vineyards you have to be in, you want to be in your own vineyards and then to think to have to drive, you know, an hour and a half out to, uh, Grayton, um, to look at a Syrah vineyard <laughs> a couple days a week would be tough, right? That's, exactly. Yeah. Well, and then at the end of the day, it's Syrah and you got to sell it, which has been That's the, the, other thing. the yeah, struggle yeah. for the last 20 years. It's supposed to be like Syrah's coming on, Syrah's coming on. And it's just, it's, it's become a wine lover's wine. Um, yes. We've all heard the, uh, we've all heard the joke about Syrah. You, you guys can tell it. I don't. I, I won't tell it here. But uh. <laughs> okay, who's going to tell it? I don't know a joke. I know it's a bummer. I freaking love it. Please, Bart, come which, on, do it. Do it. Which which particular like <laughs> the difference between oh the, Syrah and a case of crabs? I guess I don't know. Oh, you don't joke. know that one? No. no. What's the Just, difference between a Syrah and a, you can get rid of a, a case of crabs? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's true. It is. Glad true. I didn't tell that joke. Yeah, um, you guys can cut that out. There's a lot of editing, this, right? You're no, gonna edit this down to brand. tight no, thirty, no, right? No, no, no shit. Yeah, no. no, you know what? You're absolutely right. I mean, um, when they started planting Syrah in whatever that was, the '90s throughout Sonoma, right? Apparently, that vineyard in front of St. Francis, that was planted mostly to Syrah way back when, you know, I think they T-butted it over, replanted some, but Syrah was supposed to be it. And it's just never kind of ever been there, right? I'll tell you what's encouraging, though, is that, you know, obviously coming from Napa, I've kind of more known in Napa and making Napa Cab. Um, a lot of my buyers, they, they'll buy the cab every year. They'll buy as much as they can occasionally someone will be like, you know, I don't really like Syrah. Okay. I bought it this year. They'll buy it every single year after that. Right. They like, they're like, Oh, I get it now. Like I, so that's encouraging. You just got to get it. You got to get good Syrah in, in front of people and, yeah. and, 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 and convince somebody. And, and you know, that's it's definitely point, a, a more of a Syrah challenge. Is, is you pour it blind for people and you just have them taste it and, and they go, Oh my God, this is fucking amazing. They don't, because they don't know, they don't think of it as Syrah. They just think of it as a great wine. I think if you just pour it for people, you know, you have people all the time when you work in taste rooms that say, oh, I don't like Zinfandel. Um, but if you just pour a really good Zinfandel blind for them and, and they go, wow, this is amazing. What is it? It's Zinfandel. Mm. Um, I think it's the same thing with Syrah. When you have good Syrah, you just, you just got to pour it for people and get it in their mouths. And then, and then they kind of wrap their heads around it and understand what it is. It's beautiful. I mean, this wine delivers all this delivers on all the same things that the Cabernet does that it should. Right. It's aromatically beautiful. It has great mouthfeel. It's, you know, rich and delicious. Um, so oh, the aromatics are insane. This is my favorite wine that we've had so far yeah. out of all these <laughs> older wines yeah. and younger wines. And uh, yeah, I just want to smell it. So um do you want to talk about your day job a little bit? Sure. I mean, you ought to give them a plug since yeah. you might be on their time right now. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you had to check out to drive over to Napa. I had to or, clock, yeah, yeah, clock in, clock out. That's the old punch the time clock at Cliff Lady, the old uh, salt mine. <laughs> yeah, uh, 
so I've been winemaker at Cliff Lady Vineyards since 2012. Um, and, and when did they start? When did when? What's a little short background on that winery? Cliff bought the property in 2002. So the last year they celebrated their 20th anniversary. Um, eastern slope above northernmost part of Stag's Leap District on the eastern side. So we have our flagship vineyard is the Poetry Vineyard, which if you're going across the Yonville Crossroad and yep. you look up east, it's that beautiful steep terraced hillside vineyard. Um, replanted by David Abreu when he, when Cliff bought the property. Um, so when I came on board in 2012, I kind of inherited this like young little Ferrari that's becoming a am beautiful, amazing vineyard that's producing amazing wines. And then, um, pretty cool on our, where the winery is and where the tasting room is on the crossroad. Um, although we are on the Valley floor there, we're right nestled up to two little, what we call the twin peaks. Um, so there's a lot of alluvial fans coming off those. Yeah. So it's, it's really rocky and gravelly and our state vineyard there is, um, just killer. So, and all Bordeaux varieties planted there. Um, and then we purchased some Tokalon from Andy Beckstoffer, which you had on a couple yeah. weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, we make some wine from David Abreu's estate vineyards called Songbook, um, from his Madrona ranch and, um, Hell Mountain and, some and Sauvignon Blanc, right? We make some Sauvignon Blanc. That's kind of the wine that gets out there in distribution with a lot of Semillon and um, a lot of. It's a fun wine for me to make. Um, One of my favorite Sauvignon yeah, Blancs. Yeah, it's killer. And and um, and tell us, you know, how important is the Semillon to um, Sauvignon Blanc for you? Well, you were talking earlier about uh, like aha wines. Um, when I was at Colgan. We had a lunch, I forget what it was for, um, but the first wine we had was a 40, 1947 Laville Hoprion Blanc. And I thought, oh, how, this wine, there's no way this wine is uh, right. still alive, right? <laughs> and tasted that wine, I was like, oh shit. Uh, this, I mean, it was just so amazing and so layered and so mouth coating and filling and, um, I was, did some research and of course it's, you know, mostly Semillon and a little Sauvignon Blanc and thought if I ever make Sauvignon Blanc, there's definitely got to be some Semillon in there. And, and, um, so for the past, since I, when I came on board in 2012, um, in 2011, I had found, a um, the Lavisi family up in Calistoga. They're part of the Frediani kind of clan, okay. great old Italian family. They've got everything you could possibly want. If you want Petit Syrah, they got Petit Syrah. If you want Zinfandel, they got Zinfandel. If you want Cabernet, they got Cabernet. If you want Semillon, they got Sauvignon Blanc. They got Muscat. You know, just one of those families. Like they'll never rip anything out until, I think, until it literally dies. And thank God for them because they've got this 50-year-old Semillon vine uh, vineyard that goes has been going into Cliff Lady Sauvignon Blanc for a long time. Um, and then we have a new vineyard in Carneros um, that we've planted to Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon as well. So that came on board in 2022. So we've the 2022 Cliff Lady Sauvignon Blanc, I think it's the best wine, the white wine I've made um, since I've been there. And that's about 22% wow. Semillon. It just adds this mouth filling, yeah. coating character, lots of lemon curd, creme brulee. Yeah. It just adds layers to Sauvignon Blanc. That yeah. You know, Sauvignon Blanc is great on its own. It can be like laser-like focused yeah. to me, a sometimes a little one-dimensional when it's right. a little boring. So Semillon kind of comes in there and makes it a little more intellectual and, and more fun and... Um, 
a little more serious. And know, I think sometimes time. when people started using Semyon in Sauvignon Blanc, I think they used it for the wrong reasons, you know, or, you know, more of the like fume um, or reserve style where I don't think they were using it as an inspiration of the Bordeaux wines that you talk about. It was more of like, it was making Sauvignon Blanc for people who drank Chardonnay here in California. That's oh, a great point. Add body and weight. Right. right? Yeah. Like I don't really like Sauvignon Blanc, but I like this one because it reminds me of. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, and, and and it shouldn't be that way. I mean, it should still be distinctly Sauvignon Blanc, um, but you know, just throwing it into new barrels isn't the reason to do it. Right. That's a great point, and I think, you know, you obviously in Bordeaux where they're not getting things as ripe every year, Semillon makes complete sense. So yeah. we don't, I don't think we're going to go into like the, you know, the 50% Semillon kind of blend right. thing, but, right. um, cause it's just going to be too, too fig cloying and too Chardonnay ish <laughs> and too, yeah. yeah. You really want to keep the Sauvignon malt character cause it's what everyone loves about it. Right. So it's there just to kind of enhance that and make it more. Yeah. Do you more use balanced. anybody else's taste buds besides your own on tasting and blending? We don't have any consultants. Um, I haven't really, we had, when I was at Colgan, we had a French consultant named Alain Renault, who's kind of more well-known on the right bank, but I haven't used any consultants for, for blending or bottling or anything like that since I started. So Good Cliff, Cliff was trusting enough where he let me kind of do what I want to do and he seems to be happy until this day. So we'll, we'll keep uh, yeah. on that. So are we. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful taste. And what is what um, for people that don't know Cliff Lady? What is what have, what do they make and what's case production and? Um, we make around twenty thousand cases a year. Um, we're probably most well known for probably the Sauvignon Blanc because that gets out across the country. Uh, but poetry is our, for better lack of a better word, our flagship wine that we make. Yeah. It's our uh, Cabernet Sauvignon from the Poetry Vineyard, and that's around. In the past 900 cases, we're close to 1,500 cases as the, the vineyard has matured. We're able to get more blocks online. Um, and it's Cabernet Sauvignon with a little Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Petit Bordeaux, and that's um, like our, our signature wine that we make. It's yeah. 300 something dollars a, a bottle yeah. and does seems to sell out every year and yeah. Yeah. Um, people seem to like. So yeah. Yeah. what else are we known for? Sauvignon Blanc. Sauvignon Blanc. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. But you're making other things. Yeah. Tokelon and, and Songbook. And we make a right bank blend called High Fidelity. Cliff is a huge classic rock fan. So we make some wine, a wine called Rock Block. The name changes every year. All of our vineyard blocks are named after a rock and roll song. So he gets, he, he gets, uh, uh, he gets say in what the name is every year. So it changes every year when, um, right. Wait, are you doing a wine called Crossfade? Crossfade, yeah, that's Jason Lady. So Cliff's son is involved in the business okay. now, and he's he's a DJ on the right. side, right? And Where? we make a wine called um, Crossfade that kind of ex it's Cabernet Sauvignon based, but with more mm -hmm. Franc. Yeah, Cabernet Franc, right? Yeah, that's a killer wine. That's yeah. we just released our first vintage in 2019, and we'll do a 2021. That's it's killer. It's, it's yeah. a lot but of fun. But it's definitely Bordeaux focused. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's kind of, ex we have so much good Franc. We buy some Cabernet Franc from David's Madrona Ranch Vineyard, which we kind of spread around. Yeah. So it's 
his Madrona Ranch vineyard is one of the best vineyards in, in the world, if if not Napa Valley. And so we're able to get sourced that Cabernet Franc and we dose it into things. Right. And that definitely crossfade is, has got that Madrona Ranch Franc in there. It's, it's right. a little bit goes so far. It's amazing. Right. So. All right. And you want to tell us about this last wine that we're trying today? Well, we talked about Henri Bonneau and, or we haven't talked about Henri Bonneau yet, but we talked about Henri Jair, two Henri's. Um, And a producer in Chateauneuf, which really speaks to me, small, independent. These wines are not traditional Chateauneuf. I mean, they're, if you've ever seen pictures of his cellar, I don't think he bought a barrel since 1967 or something. (laughs) They're moldy and old and the wines are in barrel for five or six years. And it's kind of dirty, and sometimes the wines ferment for two years. Um, but he seems to make amazing. He passed. He passed away a couple of years ago. The wines come out on the other side. Very rare wine. Yeah. It's very hard to find. Um, and this is a very young wine. Usually, we wouldn't drink these wines for another 10, 10 years or something like that. But I thought it. Um, Instead of just bringing my, I hate just talking about my wines all the aren't, time. Aren't you glad that you didn't go get the full scientific? background and you know straight into this because it leaves you more open to just what you were saying like yeah wines and barrels and Uh, dirty and i mean there is so much of the cleanliness is godliness in the wine business um you have to have you have to have space for long fermentations um letting it sit on lees not racking it every quarter because you just need to do it because you read about it somewhere or you um, went to Davis. You guys all get well, brainwashed. Right. Well, you look at the product. I think, you know, a lot of those Davis wines, people that were coming out of Davis in graduated in the 80s, they came to Napa. They came with that kind of idea of we need to acidulate. We need to emulate Bordeaux. So we need to get the exact chemistry and this exact same tartaric acid. We need to filter these wines because they have oh. to be pure. Um, and a lot of those wines were complete disasters. So... The proof is in the pudding. And so when you go taste great wines, you ask how they did it. How do they do it? How do those guys do it? And that's where you learn we're unfiltered and I've seen some, and some pretty dusty places uh, in France. There's no recipe. Yeah. That's what I try to get across to people. Like you, yeah. you, you have to listen to the vineyard. Listen, listen to what the grapes are telling you. Don't try not to get too many winemakers in your head telling you what to do believe in what you're tasting and experience, you know, you have to try, just keep trying. And I'm always feel like I'm learning every year on, on all these wines. So, um, can we talk about yeast just for a second? No, Um, no yeast is off the table. I can't talk about yeast. (laughs) No. Okay. We can talk about yeast. I mean, so Bart mentioned we had Greg LaFollette on and, and he's sort of, I mean, you can listen to him for three hours, talk about yeast, but, um, it's, are you guys using natural or do you have a specific yeast that you prefer using on on your wines what we try to do is we try to get as wild as we possibly can you know i I think well i think we've kind of what most people have come into is that when you're in a winemaking facility that's had any sort of cultured yeast in it in the past at some point one of those yeasts is going to take over your fermentation um and so people that say, oh, this is wild yeast or this is naturally fermented, 
generally speaking, at some point, one of those yeast is going to come in and, and ferment your wine to dryness. And so what we try to do is when we come in, we've got, let's say we harvest grapes. They've been on cold soak for a couple of days. We usually do five to seven days on cold soak for our Cabernets. As we're warming the tank up, we'll start to get fermentation going. And hopefully there's some yeast from the vineyard in there that are starting and adding to that complexity. Um, but ultimately, we'll, what we'll do is we'll dose in a little bit of cultured yeast just to get some um, insurance that that wine's going right. to go dry. And so we'll, hopefully we're going to get the complexity of the native yeast that we've um, allowed to come in from the winery or, or from the vineyard. Those are going to contribute because every single yeast trial that we've ever done, we can tell differences in the yeast strain a couple months after fermentation, but then three, four five months after aging, you can't tell the difference between what yeast fermented what. So if we're not getting incredibly different results from different yeasts, we'd right. rather have the security of, of going dry and because bad yeasts can really start a cycle of if they're not getting the fruit dry, our VAs are going up. Um, you know, we're going to have to re-inoculate anyways. You're going to have to in introduce a culture yeast after that to try to get it dry. And, um, and, and, and usually th the one you have to introduce is going to be more impactful. Right. At least I found maybe after three or four months, it goes away, like you say, but it's more impactful than, than not doing anything. Right. I can count on one hand the amount of wines that have been restarted in my life that have actually made it into a final blend that haven't just either been bulked off or have having mm -hmm. to been declassified into like the lowest wine. So um, while I'm sympathetic in the in, in the idea that you want to have these like native yeasts that ferment the wines, they're just, it's not like we've we're in, we're we're not like getting in um, yeast that have been what would you call it like genetically engineered we're right. not using any of those yeasts right. we're just being yeast using natural yeast that have been selected from strains that we know are reliable and right. will ferment um i mean the yeast book is like this yeah you know and what chris is saying is there are super yeast in there and but yeah. if you just kind of use things that have been you know and part of that is yeast salesman marketing like they want to tell you right. like oh we cultured this from a great winery in France from right. the Rhone Valley. And then young winemakers, they, they given a job, maybe they're not ready to, to do. And they were like, Oh, I want my wine to taste like a right. great wine from, from Burgundy. So whatever new name they put on the same yeast they've been selling to different people. It's you have to, you have to take everything with a grain of salt. Yeah. And, and it's going to be different every year. Right. I mean, you know, there's, there's yeast in the house and I think, at our facility, you know, there was three of us in there and one of the persons that has since left used cultured yeast and used a very strong cultured yeast. And when they left, we had that first year, it, it was different. Like their barrels were out there. Equipment was out there. Little cold room was different. I mean, out and, and our, all of our fermentations were a little weird that next year because the guy that moved in doesn't inoculate the two of us don't really inoculate it, it was different now it's been a couple years now we're on our this will be a fourth year and it seems to kind of gotten back into its into its flow yeah. it, it's not it's not anything other than um just what's living there right 
to to Chris's point is that there are times where you kind of go, oh, this is a little funky. I, you know, I had a wine that kind of turned funky on me and I had to get involved in it. And I wish I wouldn't have had to do it. If I would have taken a little bit. He's also probably not, you know, the yeast salesman say X amount of, you know, kilos per liter, right? <laughs> I doubt that he's doing what they recommend because remember, they're trying to sell yeast and yeast right. is expensive also. Right. I'd be curious to know your thoughts too about um, as far as what it takes for, you know, a wine that's not going dry, what you're, you're going to have to figure out how to get that wine dry, right? I, I have a couple barrels right now that I'm <laughs> kind of looking at with that. Um, yeah. And how, and do you see differences years down the road about, different yeast strains can you tell the difference have you done experiments about I, I, that i mean i haven't i've i at at lassiter you know we did some stuff on white wines with um you know natural cultured natural yeast and whatnot and i think we kind of came to the person i worked with she loved to do those experiments and she could define differences in them but she also knew that there were supposed to be differences mm. right these weren't like double blind tastings um, myself, I kind of go along with what you saying down the road, they all kind of showed the yeast characteristic wasn't what made the difference in them. Mm -hmm. Um, it, but even it, in terms, so I started getting geeky about this and I, I know I'd like know just enough to be dangerous, but when you're talking about glucose and sucrose, right? Is that what it's that the, the, the wild yeast is, is finishing one way. And then the, the, the want the yeast that you're, that you're introducing is finishing another way it can be it could depend on the vintage some years grapes will produce more glucose than sucrose and there can be huge swings in those numbers right. so you um I, I try to i really try to take a a larger view in that each winemaker in their facility has to make their own decisions totally. right like if you're in a custom crush facility with 50 other people and right. every winemaker's got their own own thoughts Maybe using a cultural use is yeast is a is a good thing, right. and maybe if you don't use it, you're gonna you're gonna get Bart's yeast that jumped over into your yeah. picking bin or your tank or your hose line or something like that. If you've got your own small, tiny little winery, maybe you can be a little bit more like, oh, maybe I'll just try to let things go native. Or, yeah. or and, but, and 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 he's completely right. It, it's it's really easy for us small producers to to do these things because we're completely in control of it. But when you're at a custom crush facility um, and you don't know, you don't know if that guy cleaned the equipment to your standard before he used it on your place, on your on your wines, or even if you went over and picked up a hose. I mean, so so there's the reason to be more careful, to be more proactive, um, you know, yeah. not to just kind of like go with it. Um, and, and the glucose fructose thing, I... I I, that's a whole new th thing for me. I'm learning about that because you, uh, you bricks is not, you know, bricks is not what it's about anymore. It's about glucose fructose. I mean, <laughs> right. you think your wine's dry and then you send it in for a glucose fructose right. and you go, Oh, <laughs> we got a ways to go here a little bit, <laughs> yeah. you know? And, um, and sometimes then the seller it's getting to be later in the fall, the seller's getting cold and guess what? Nothing wants to ferment you right. know, when it's cold. Um, so when is it going to finish to what Chris was saying earlier? 
in some ways it's a way to when we're thinking about wines and making wines we both want to make wines that taste like the vineyard and when you have retinomyces or or you've got volatile acidity all both of those things are going to intrude on what the actual vineyard tastes like so you're if let's say you have a that's the whole point of natural wine why it's like a well, what are you doing here sort of thing, right? You know, I mean, you have to be, you have to be laser focused. Is, is a, getting a clean wine that's gone through fermentation without these faults, is that more of an expression of terroir? And we're getting in, into the weeds here now, but right. is that more of an expression of terroir than if someone said, I'm going to make it naturally, I'm just going to let the vineyard speak for itself, but it smells like a horse's ass right. and the VA, VA smells like nail polish and yeah. you can you really taste the vineyard at that point? So at some point we're you're using these techniques and these uh, these ways of protecting the terroir because we want to we want to taste that what what the soil is giving us. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a conversation. Often it's that framed in that like you're manipulating things, but no, right. we're trying to like protect the expression. That, that's right. that's a really good point. It's framed in right. that you're manipulating it, but well, what because, you're really trying to do is and and the reason I bring it up and 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 I think we're going to talk about it more in the future on on future podcasts is because I had a really interesting conversation the other day with someone who used to work for a company and let's I, let's say I can't say the name of the company but let's say it rhymes with Mallow um, that 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 they are creating genetically engineered yeast strains that have specific flavor profiles for your wine. So I just think it's a it's an interesting conversation going forward because I don't know if you guys remember we we once talked about that um, tasting room over in Oakland where they were recreating great wines, not even using um, grape juice. Right. Remember, it was through the use of synthetic chemicals and all this. So mm. I think there's a it's just a larger conversation that's going on. It's and it's not happening with people that are mostly on this show. It's people that are making large um, volume um, wines. But I think it's it's going to be um, it's going to be something that we'll talk about in the future as far as shaping the wine. Um, creating the wine as opposed to, like you said, letting this sort of letting the vineyard speak. It's going to be like, let's, we could basically take any fruit from Central Valley and then we can shape it into this thing that we want um, through the use, through the use of yeast. Mm. Um, and a bunch of other stuff. And possibly a bunch of other stuff. And 82 known things that we can actually add or uh, <laughs> add into the wines. Um I can see that happening for sure. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to that same thing. You have to know, know your winemaker, know, you know, know, know whoever it is you're buying a product from. Right. Right. You know, and, and that's really important to some people and some people, they just want it to taste good and just, you know, want to drink it and not worry about it. And I'm um, on both sides of the fence too. I, sometimes I'm, I'm, I don't have a problem with some Instagram model sitting in a pool, crushing a bottle of something that tastes like pineapples. Right. Um, <laughs> But, you know, if we're having fun, right. um, then great. But no, when I'm, you're right, Bart. It's about knowing the people that are making the wine and just getting a little um, behind the scenes, peek behind the curtain as far right. as what people are doing. Right. Yeah. And if it means something to you, then then um, I think that's why we're here too. Chris, how are your wines available and where? 
just through christophertynan.com. Okay. I have a little website there. Uh, not much information on there. Uh, <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> In we a, couldn't find any information on you for the show. Normally, we do research, and it was a total like kind of inten- protection program. It's is kind of intentional of in a fa- in a way. It's my marketing in that the lack of seems marketing like is everybody marketing. in the entire world just wants to open up their entire life and right. their vacation photos and their yeah you know pap smears and their <laughs> and their cool black colonoscopy results. It's just all out there, oh, and yeah. and honestly, I think. It, this may seem into it's kind of intentional, but because when I like when I'm when you're cruising through France or Italy and you're just driving along and you pull off on the side of the road and this little restaurant doesn't look like much or or, you know, this little winery doesn't look like much. And you go in there and you, you taste the wines or you taste the food and you think, oh, geez, this wasn't on any sort of Michelin guide yeah. or that that seems to me the to me the most precious kind of like experiences anyone can have these days is to find those little hidden gems that everyone doesn't else you know not everyone knows about and yeah. i'm not selling a ton of wine i don't have to go out there and try to push my my wines and the people that have bought my wine and that are buying my wine are are they get it they found me a lot of people found me through robert parker early on um with the 2013 got a huge score and a good review but then the people that have stayed people <laughs> that have stayed have are, get it like they they realize that um and part of the label we going back to the label the part of the label was i could have spent two hundred fifty thousand dollars on a label design and having to pass that cost down to the consumer and it just didn't no. seem like me so and, and the people that really love wine that find me they're, they're much more fun to drink with yeah. Than the guy that just come wants to swing into town and oh, I'm gonna drink the hundred point wine and they got off the private plane and they're complete assholes and yeah, right. so you get to find people that are more down to earth and real. I hope you're finding so it's, more it's, down to earth than assholes. I'll just say that. Y- yes, for sure, for sure. So it sounds like the experiment is working. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But we still need to we still need to bring people into the fold, right? Because you still want. Yeah. I mean, as going back to that thing. You know, you're always searching for something that entices you to make make a new wine, right? Like if you found a piece of property that you could make some wine off of, you would that you were passionate about, but you need someone to buy it for sure. And so therefore, (laughs) you know, if they buy one of each, um, you know, uh, maybe they'll buy three of each. Right. Well, they are beautiful wines for sure. Beautiful. Nice. No, the marketing, the marketing makes sense to someone like me as, as a um, beverage director and a psalm at places. I always wanted to do, I I didn't like it when people came and talked to me and gave me the whole tech sheet and dropped off a thing that had the family photos and history of the wines. I loved when someone just dropped off a bottle with a business card and then I sort of did the research myself. And so I got to do the, the legwork. Um, and then I got to discover it for myself and I kind of felt like I was the one that discovered that wine. Mm. Um, it's a more it's it's a more fun journey, um, and you appreciate it a little bit more. I got that you know. same satisfaction when I was you know waiting tables and turning on yeah. people to wines they'd never had before, and like don't yeah. don't drink don't drink this. Try if you like this, try this, and right. then like you know you can change people's lives by doing me. that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So yeah. if you're yeah. just driving around times. Napa, is there where can they taste your wines? Uh, <laughs> 
The kid. <laughs> <I love> <laughs> Nowhere. I mean, I was at the yeah. You mentioned Chris Cosentino earlier. Yeah. yeah. The Syrah was there for a long time. Yeah. Um, Which makes sense. Yeah, because yeah. Willie, the the psalm that was there for years, he he yeah. not got it in when they kept buying it. It's great with his cuisine. Yep. Um, but that's it. There's that's it's just uh, just you have to get on the website. You hear that, you guys? It. Yeah, bomb, yeah. Podcast bump coming. Yeah, right. <laughs> you guys, you want to taste it? You're not gonna find it. You gotta get a hold of Chris. Yeah. And something tells me if you send an email to Chris, it's gonna be Chris who gets back to you. For sure. It's certainly um, it's, not going to be Katie because she has a job. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and James is a little young. He's too young to type. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for bringing the, I mean, especially wow. that Syrah. Yes. Yeah. That Syrah is all, all the wines are just beautiful. Yeah. A pleasure. What a um, collection today. Wow. I know. Quite a diversity. 86 to 13 to... To K eighty back to, to eighty six, rosé, then to twenty two thousand ten. None of us ever got to try. Thank God. The can of rosé. <laughs> yeah. Have to try that. Oops. Sam. Yeah. Wow. Um. All right. Uh. Anything? What else? Anything exciting coming up for you guys? You got anything planned for the summer? Nothing. I know. I'm not Working, wanting to. Not wanting to. Trying to make another your, good vintage. Right. Happy for the rain this this fall or this winter. Yeah. And real quick, how does it look out there? You you're getting out and looking at vineyards now. Are you? The soils are deep and rich and full of water, which is great. That right. hasn't happened in a long time. So, yeah. fingers crossed. There's fog. Right. It's interesting. It feels like a, a flashback to, to have a years, brutal of, years ago. Summer. I mean, I saw El Nino coming in and. I, I haven't listened to anything long term. I'm just enjoying. I feel like I'm just enjoying. Almanacs, the, I, I mean, I'm not. I can't control any of it anyway. So I just, you know, hope <laughs> yeah. to, you know, pay attention and, um, you know, yeah, you don't make know better decisions. All you got to well, do is buy the fruit at the end. Right. But 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 I also <laughs> from last year, I learned one lesson in that I, you know, there was one particular wine where I should have said, you sure we can't get that off before that date? You know, yeah. and. Um, so it, that's the thing is speak up a little more. Right. You know, that's good. And, you know, we um, actually the guy who grows the petite Syrah that you made the rosé for was in here last weekend. Right. Yeah. That was fun. There was a total random, by the way. That's what he said. Yeah. 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 They're nice people. Talk about yeah. some people that like found themselves in the wine business. Like bought a house, had a vineyard <laughs> with a crop on it. Um, and by the way, it's Petit Syrah and, <sighs> and he doesn't even drink red wine. <laughs> Jeez. So yeah. yeah, so we can make some rosé out of it. Sure. But you yeah. grow the reddest wine. Right. Available. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's, that's a dream to make some. Chris, any rosé. shout outs? No, just to thank you guys for, because uh, your podcast is amazing and it's, you really are a time capsule. I think people are going to be listening to this 20, 30 thank years and, and, and listening to what people were doing back then. And, and hopefully it's a great education for me. And opening up a bottle of that cab right? yeah. 30 years from now, yeah. listening to this show. That's why be, I brought that. It can blow my mind. Yeah. Cause I thought it was in the yeah. tradition that you guys have set forth here. That thank is you. so yeah. great. And you guys ask great questions and yeah, you keep it moving and you keep it interesting. Thank you. Which is much. important. Well, maybe in the future here we can have you and Katie on together, and um, that'd be fun, fun with that. Oh yeah. gosh, I haven't had any. I won't get a word in edgewise. <laughs> Bart, any shout-outs? No, I'm. I think I said enough earlier today. 
Um, I guess everybody should, although everybody should consider that September 15th or the days around September 15th are coming soon and the whole Grenache Day celebration. Do you know this um, is getting out of control, actually? I, I mean, I've been out of town for like a week, so I'm sure okay. stuff has happened. So, so we're still doing a really kind of an insider party on 15th, the Friday. Celebrate um, my birthday. Thank you. Happy birthday, Bart. We will be drinking beautiful wines with a bunch of growers and winemakers. The 16th is going to be a dinner that's going to be catered by the girl in the fig. Vicki Carroll from Hospice Daron is now confirmed. She is bringing a bunch of Grenache that is going to go down the middle of the table for 75 to 100 people. Whoa. So we will provide. But we also a, won't know where that place is, right? It's at an undisclosed location, but we will provide a link for those tickets. And then Sunday is a concert out at the Denmark Barn. Um, Catherine Russell, a world-renowned jazz artist, oh, yeah. who we had to get a grand piano for. We just <laughs> sourced that. We'd never had to do that before. And then Tony Saunders, who is the son of Merle Saunders, um, is going to be playing, um, is going to open up for Catherine. He's going to be playing some Grateful Dead tunes and then sort of transition into blues. And then he said he's going to transition into jazz to sort of lead up to Catherine um, taking the stage. That's going to be a hell of a show. We had we weren't sure what we were going to do about food. Um, so um, we have the former chef of Edge um, at Stone Edge Farm is going to be doing one of the um, little stations of food out there. And then possibly uh, uh, Duck Confit Tacos and or okay. Mike the Baker. So right. this is going to be... Off the chain weekend. Um, oh, and by the way, Vicky Carroll said, do you guys want to produce a master class on Grenache uh, on one of those days? And so I said, well, I don't know how we can say no to that. Right. Um, so I don't even know that hasn't even taken shape yet. I don't know exactly when that would happen. Probably Saturday during the day. Maybe people that buy tickets for the dinner can come to the master class like a couple hours before um, going out to the dinner. Um, but I can just imagine. I mean, she has access to everybody world-class grenache um so anyway it's gonna be, mark your calendars um get a hotel room um at least get a room for um saturday and sunday night and um and we're actually gonna do international grenache day right this year mm. yeah that's Sna much that's much spiel wow snow is cool <laughs> yeah it is yeah. and getting cooler every day it's amazing so well, thank you, Brian. Uh, we want to make sure everybody reviews the show when they have a chance. We love our listeners. Oh, Except who's, for... Who's the guy who loves you? <laughs> What's his name? Podlove. I just want to say thanks, man. Podlove. Much appreciated. Podlove. Always, you know. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, any any publicity is good publicity, no, but, shout you, out to Podlove. but you don't spell my name right. <laughs> <laughs> All cool. Podlove donated a kidney when I needed one. <laughs> And I'm oh, thankful thank for you, him. Podlove. <laughs> We're going to give you more attention than you want. <laughs> All good. All right. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Much appreciated, as always. Thank and, you, guys. Yep. Drink, drink more Syrah. <laughs>